Hello and welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about your practice and your Buddhist practice, your meditation practice, your life practice. So we spend the first 15 minutes, as usual, collecting questions. So if you have questions, now's the time to post them in chat. Of course, you can post them later as well. This way we have some questions to begin. Also, we take the 15 minutes to establish ourselves in mindfulness. So if you're not ready, you might want to hold off asking your question, prepare yourself mentally, and make sure you have the right question. Make sure you have questions that are important to you, valuable, not wasting your time, not wasting our time, making the most of this short time we have together. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions. Chris is here to help. He will be asking them on your behalf.
right, it's 15 minutes after the hour. So from here on, we'd ask that the chat be restricted to questions only. If you have questions, again, please post them in the chat. We'll be here until the end of the hour or until the questions run out, whichever comes first. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. How do our past experiences and memories affect our meditation progress? I'm not regular in my practice. Well, experiences and memories don't affect your practice, but past habits are what you should be interested in. Your past habits are going to make meditation hard. But habits, um, we have to, like specifically habits, when I say habits, I'm referring to reactions, your patterns of reactivity, how you interpret and the ways that you engage with experience. So the experiences are gone. I mean, they're not going to have any effect, but the memories are going to come up, but are still not going to affect your practice. But how you uh, are used to dealing with those memories can have a profound effect on your practice. Memories can evoke sadness, but the memories don't trigger, don't uh, create it. They trigger it. They trigger your habits because you are triggerable, because your uh, attitude, your perspective, your habit is to react. Um, as for not being regular in your practice, well, I don't know if you've even practiced our tradition, but if you do, I don't know if you've done our at-home course, and if you have, uh, well, if you haven't, read do, do the at-home course. If you have, maybe it's time to come and do a course at our center. And if you've done that, well, irregularity in practice is, it's a reality, but you can you can encourage yourself by reminding yourself how great it is that you do some practice. Better to do some meditation than none. And try to work on that. Find reasons to practice every day. What can be done to stop being lazy and falling back to bad habits? Well, you can't have the attitude of just stopping. Stopping isn't a thing. You can change, but change takes work, takes time. You have to think of this as a road, as a path. I mean, depends on you. Of course, if you're a very developed and spiritually mature individual, it shouldn't take long at all. But for most people, especially nowadays, so much so much time has passed since the Buddha passed away. We're dealing with a lot of defilements, and you should be patient and consider that um, learning about your bad habits is going to be more important than not falling back on them, more important than stopping. The attitude and the perspective you have to have, the approach you have to take, is of learning rather than chain, than stopping or fixing. So this question is, sounds more like you're you're trying to fix. 
And you can't approach it like that because it's not fixable. Just um, understanding change. Understanding causes you to change. You start to see the things that you thought were beneficial or not beneficial. The bad habits are actually problematic. You see them as problematic because you're paying attention. So that's the best approach is to just try and pay better attention. And for that, that's what mindfulness is for. Not for fixing, not for changing, not for controlling, but for seeing clearly. Because it's the seeing clearly that fixes and changes and frees you. I've been noting for a while and recently noticed that certain conceptual feelings like anxiety is a sensation like heat or pressure arising and me projecting it to the supposed thing that triggered it. Should I still note the conceptual feelings or note the sensations that are masked under the feeling? These days, all I note is heating or pressure, as in difficulty breathing, when it arises. Yeah, it sounds like you might be overthinking things. Um, and that causes you problems. The thing about mental states is they tend to be pretty quick, uh, whereas the physical lasts longer. And so it's a, it's easy to mistake them everything for physical, that you're just feeling heat or pressure. But anxiety is not a sensation. Uh, it's just that there's an association there because anxiety creates that. But anxiety is quick. It's just not so long, but it's a misunderstanding to think that anxiety is the heat or the pressure. They're two very different things, and you should note them as such. You shouldn't not note the anxiety. The thing is, once you note it, it's probably already gone, and that's fine. Or it could be already gone. Uh, and you don't want to mistake the physical for the mental and think that, oh, this heat and pressure is the anxiety. It's not. It's more like the product, a byproduct of anxiety. The feelings are not conceptual. Anxiety is not conceptual. It's very real. It's just mental, and that's maybe what you're getting stuck on, is that you think because it's mental it just doesn't even exist, but that's not true. All that exists is not just physical. I find myself thinking ahead to remember the next touch point while I am still noting sitting. Is this from staying with the sitting for too long? Should I note this as knowing or something else? Well, sitting should just be momentary, but it can take a bit to sometimes to know that you're sitting. But if you're thinking ahead for the purpose of remembering before you've said sitting, then you probably want to note that. It's just a bad habit that you should cut off. Don't develop it. Instead, just note the, the thinking. Or... How to work yeah, up more? You could note it as knowing or thinking is fine. Sorry, go ahead. 
How to work up more urgency towards meditation inside oneself. Should we scare ourselves into meditation? Yeah, I mean, to some extent it's helpful. It's, of course, you, you want to maybe not be so strong as saying scare ourselves into meditation. We should certainly wake ourselves up. Um, and there's lots of ways to do that. Read a study of the Buddha's teaching, association with people who are energetic, who do have a sense of urgency. Association with a teacher, taking meditation courses, that sort of thing. It often requires, I mean, it requires on an ultimate, in an ultimate sense, on an ultimate level, it requires you to see suffering. And for some people that takes tragedy in their lives, but shouldn't have to. You just have to understand that uh, you're in a, you're in dire straits, even when terrible things aren't happening to you, that you're in real danger if you still have defilements. Even just the danger of being reborn again, it's something we have a real hard time understanding. But being born again is uh, already danger. Just think of all the suffering you've had to go through growing up and it's thinking that you might have to do it all over again if you're not uh, working hard in this life. When I am walking outside, not meditating, I want to stay mindful. So I note each step as walk and ing. Is this a suggested way to stay mindful of the body when not meditating? Yeah, I mean, I would note, I usually would note walking with each step, walking, walking, or even right, left, right, left. Walking, I wouldn't prefer it. I would prefer to say with each step, walking. How do they say it in Thai? I'm trying to think. I know they can say kwa sai, kwa sai, but how do they say? Don't. I think they maybe say walking, walking, yeah. What are some good, healthy thoughts to cultivate throughout the day? So there are topics for daily reflection. Um, let me look them up just so I get them all. Five daily reflections is what we're looking for. So you can look these up on the internet, the five daily reflections. Um, yeah, and these are different, like there's five, and then there's another set for monks as well, but basically it's from the Anguttara Nikaya. I am subject to aging. I will not be able to escape aging. I am subject to illness. There's no way that I will be able to leave life without illness. I am subject to death. Death is inevitable for all beings. Um, I will... Change is inevitable, basically, and that which is dear and appealing to me, I will have to leave behind. And number five, I am the owner of my actions. Whatever I do, whether it be wholesome or unwholesome, will be 
my inheritance. I will inherit the fruits of those deeds. It's not the most important thing. You don't have to focus too much on your thoughts during, the, like, cultivating specific thoughts. Though there are other things you can do, like try and practice metta regularly, friendliness, just have a moment to send thoughts of friendliness. Consider your own death as a sort of a daily thing. That's, a, that's one of the five, right? Think about the Buddha so you can spend a few minutes chanting the Buddha's qualities, that sort of thing. And you can take some time to go over the uh, parts of the body, 32 parts of the body, just to, to help you, remind you that the body is is what it is. It's not beautiful. It's not attractive. It's just blood and guts and bones and skin. What is the so-called transition zone? I've never heard such a term used. Uh, maybe I'm just drawing a blank, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Is swearing unethical? Well, not technically. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not technically, but there's quite often regular, I was, most of the time, there's unethical qualities of mind associated with swearing. Uh, I mean, there's a famous example in the in the commentaries, I think, a story of a monk who would uh, refer to his fellow monks in a very in a very sort of coarse way. Like there was a way of speaking to people like kind of like I guess how we would say dude or something. You know, dude is actually a terrible word. It's a pimple. It's a, a pimple on a horse's rear end or something. But, uh, you know, the word evolved. But nonetheless, it's still kind of a coarse. It's not something you would say in, a, in high society or even polite society. Generally, you just wouldn't say dude. Um, so it was even worse than that, I think. But he would call the monks that. But it was just how he was, what he was used to. There's um, a fairly well-known story that I was told when I was in Thailand of a, a very old monk who had a very old-fashioned, rural way of, of speaking. And uh, so he used these words like mung and gu, which nowadays Thai people would just be horrified if anyone used those words. They just mean you and me, <laughs> or uh, them, sorry, them and me, gu, mung. I can't remember what, uh, mung and gu, I think. Gu is I, mung is you mung is you actually i think but uh he was so he was asked this very very important high ranking monk was coming to visit and they said no please please lumpa just don't don't say anything while he's here try and not make a scene and uh so this very senior very important monk came and saw them and he went to the old monk and paid respect, and the monk, the old monk, was just silent, and he, he said, oh, Lumpa, how are you? And he didn't say anything. He said, what's wrong? Why aren't you speaking? 
and he just burst out. He said, <laughs> which is really just a horrible thing to say, but but not really. It's just a very old-fashioned way of speaking that that has gone out of fashion and become something. It's evolved into kind of a swear word, actually. You just wouldn't use those words as derogatory to call someone mung or even to refer to yourself as gu. But in in old, old times, it wasn't like that. Anyway, um, the point is, there are there are cases where people use these words. I know I used to have a, a friend, an Israeli monk. He's a teacher, actually, who uh, who would often use the word bullshit. And uh, he just used it in ordinary speech. And I, I tried to tell him once, you know, because he, his English wasn't great. But I said, you know, that that's not really a polite thing to say. Uh, but he wasn't really hearing it. And then uh, later on, I was learning how to speak Thai, and there's this word for stupid. I said, oh, oh this is no, it means stupid. He, he looked at me and said, oh, we probably shouldn't learn that word. So the i think the the point to make to be made is that po- being polite is appropriate is proper and what you do find i think is people uh disregarding the uh thought the, the feelings of others disregarding the potential upset that their words might cause and expecting other people to just accept them for who they are. It's not polite to say these words, and it's not appropriate in certain societies. Um, it's about thoughtfulness and and kindness and friendliness. And you should use words that are pleasing. The Buddha said you should use words that are sweet and pleasing to the ear. But ultimately, it doesn't mean that there is any word that is going to be unwholesome. Words, just like actions, are not either wholesome or unwholesome by their very nature. It's the quality of mind behind the words. If we haven't seen Nibbana, what drives us to begin practice and keep practicing? Is it desire? Do we note this desire to practice? Well, the biggest thing, as I mentioned already, I think, is uh, the appreciation of suffering that lead, that leads people to practice. But practice is about mindfulness. It's about clarity. It's really just a much better state than than how we are now. So the reason why people see suffering is because they start to, they realize in some way or another that they're broken, that they have bad habits. That they are that they have evil in their in their hearts, that they are causing themselves suffering. See, we we tend to think of ourselves as neutral, like at a neutral state. I'm ordinary. There's nothing special about me. Maybe you think, but we're all corrupted. The truth is, we're anyone who's born into the world, no matter what, has some level of corruption because that's what it requires to be reborn, and that corruption is causing us suffering. And to the extent that you can see that, I think um, you'll be interested in mindfulness practice because mindfulness is just the better way. It's a describing a way of being 
that is free from these sorts of um, attachments, including desire. So it's not desire, it's just wisdom, really, of kind of a mundane, but a mundane, important mundane wisdom, seeing that you're causing yourself suffering. People who see that they have anger issues, people who they see, see that they have addiction issues, fear, worry, delusion, conceit, arrogance. It, when, when you see these things in you and you realize that they're, they're bad, they're horrible, you, you get interested in meditation. How does one distinguish the mental from the physical sensations when noting, when they all seem one? Isn't the mental just thoughts or concepts? Aren't they just perspective and have no real reality? Oh, that's not true at all. I mean, this is all just intellectual uh, misunderstanding. You're just what you're doing is trying to logic apply logic to to something that is not about logic at all. It's about experience. When you're afraid, you experience the fear. When you like something, you, you there's liking. But that liking is not the physical. It's just associated with the physical. When there's disliking, the, the, I think the problem, the hang-up that you have is, is this um, cultural uh, uh, sort of, what's a nicer word for brainwashing, but cultural indoctrination in, in, in regards to existence being um, equivalent to uh, material reality so when you think of what exists you think well there's only the physical i mean that it exists because it's physical mental exists on a different level um so i guess what i would say is that there is um there there in every experience there are many parts so there's going to be a physical aspect but there'll be a mental aspect as well and the fear is the mental aspect um, so there, there may not necessarily be a, a, a physical sensation, but there will be maybe a, a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling, which is mental, which is not physical. So you might, if, for instance, if you have peer, fear or anger, there may be unpleasant feelings associated with that. Those are not men, those are not physical, but they're, they're a mental feeling, but they're not, they're also not the anger or the fear. It's just that they're very quick and you're probably not able to see them yet. The mind is a very quick thing to change. So one thing I would say is that it's okay to focus primarily on the body in the beginning because as the, I mean, the ancient commentaries say, point out that um, the, the more clear, as, as the body becomes more clear, the mind becomes more clear. Uh, accordingly so you only really have to start by focus, focusing on the body and you'll start to see the mind as well when i note thinking i notice that my attention naturally goes just outside and above my head to the right is there anything wrong with my mind placing its attention there when I note thinking? Well, I mean, it's nothing to do with the thinking. Thinking, another thing about mind is it doesn't take up place. So all mental realities don't 
take up space. So if you have a sensation in the brain, that can be somehow a product of noting itself because of the effort you're putting in, then you should note that as a feeling. That would be a physical sensation. So yeah, you shouldn't actively put your mind in any particular spot when noting thinking. All that means is that you're noticing an experience there. I try practicing walking meditation according to your booklet, but I find it very hard to stay mindful and noting while walking. My mind keeps wandering. Do you have any advice other than practicing? Well, the only other advice we keep practicing is, is, is good advice, but another advice is to um, not be discouraged by meditation being hard. Mindfulness is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be a challenge. It's meant to challenge you. It's meant to show you how challenging um, your mind and your habits make ordinary experience, that you have states of mind that make simply experiencing reality challenging. It's meant to be like that. It's meant to show you that. It's not actually my, It's not actually walking that's hard. It's your bad habits, and that's the whole point, is to see those bad habits. So when you do this thing and you find it very hard, what you're seeing is all the badness in the mind, all the stuff that you have to work out, and just seeing it is great. Seeing it makes you more careful in the future, at the very least. Should we practice being conscious while asleep and dreaming? So if you have lucid dreams, you certainly can be mindful. If you don't have lucid dreams, it's not like you have to force them. A person who is really into meditation over a prolonged period shouldn't really have dreams. Not any really strong dreams anyway. They sleep less, and when they sleep, it's just, just sleep. I've been meditating for a while, and I feel like it changed my life very positively, but as time passes by, I feel I'm disconnected from myself. I've gotten bored, or my mind comes up with excuses. Why does my mind get bored or come up with excuses not to meditate? Should I try other meditation methods? Is there a better suggestion? Well, over time, the changes bring, um, bring some measure of relief from certain problems, mental issues, but they can also shine light on new mental issues that are more, maybe more subtle, um, but that you haven't yet dealt with. So boredom is not a sign that you're doing the wrong thing. Boredom is always, no matter what you're doing, boredom is always a problem, always useless, always unhelpful, always problematic, sorry, not just useless, always unhelpful always problematic, always will cause you problems. And that's another thing that mindfulness is designed to show you. So if you're starting to get bored in meditation, all that is is mindfulness showing you this bad habit of getting bored, because getting bored is, again, always problematic no matter what you're doing. It's never the right response to anything. You're coming up with excuses. That's also a sign of aversion. And aversion is a very real, important problem that 
mindfulness is designed to cure. Can consistent meditation practice give us the ability to see past lives or any other supernatural powers? Well, there are meditations that are designed specifically for all the various types of extraordinary practices. Uh, Mindfulness isn't designed for it particularly, but it can lead to such clarity that it I would say um, it uh, allows latent, like existent, existent training in, in those meditations in past lives, say, to come up and to bear fruit if you have the prior Upanisaya. Is it wrong to give punishment for evil or unfavored deeds? And is it comparable to causing suffering itself? Like the man who stole or the dog that bites, is punishing them equally wrong? Yes, Buddhism is not into punishment. Um, I guess I would, okay, we can qualify that by uh, talking about restraint and um, ostracism. You know, in in Buddhism, I think we really only go so far as ostracism. That's the ultimate punishment allowed, is to completely ostracize and ignore and um, stop engaging with an individual, Um, refusing like we can refuse to accept alms from certain people if they are evil. And we can ostracize monks for being evil, that sort of thing. But yeah, punishment is not really um, not really in accordance with Buddhist principles. Bad karma. Is compassion a form of craving, since it's a desire for the well-being of others? What makes ill will a hindrance in mindfulness, but not compassion or kindness? No, it's not desire. And desire for well-being is metta. Or not desire, but uh, an, a, a, it's, a, it's an inclination. We use the word desire because we have trouble with words, but... It's not a desire, it's just an inclination. It's an attitude. Let's put it that way. You have an attitude of of um, working towards the well-being of others. That's metta. If you have... Uh, karuna or compassion is the, so the other side of the coin for people to be free from suffering. So when you see people in suffering and you think of what you can do to help them, but you just have the attitude that um, intends or or inclines for people's well-being and for people's freedom from suffering. Ill will is a hindrance uh, because it is partial. So if you're partial to one thing and not the other, that's never going to be good. It's just like desire is also partial. 
but but friendliness is not like if you're friendly, hey, is friendly an attachment? That would sort of be a ridiculous thing to say, right? Likewise with compassion. Compassion is non-cruelty. It's the freedom from cruelty. Just like friendliness. It's the opposite of the coin of opposite side of the coin of friendliness. Lack of unfriendliness, I guess you could say. To be too harsh with oneself, ruminating in auto-defeating things, or exaggerating perceived defects, and in lucid moments, recognizing that you are lying to yourself, could this be a violation of the fourth precept? No, lying to yourself doesn't break the fourth precept. You can't lie to yourself. You can uh, bring, you can torture yourself, or, or hmm, can you actually lie to yourself? Can you convince yourself of something that is not true? I suppose possibly, but no, that's not breaking the fourth precept. You have to understand the precepts are not synonymous with morality. They're not synonymous with goodness. Um, you can keep all of the precepts, or all you could have a million precepts and keep them all and still find loopholes. Because it's not about what you do, it's about how you do it that matters. So you can do, you can say, tell the truth with unwholesomeness. Tell someone the truth hoping that the truth hurts them or confuses them or makes them scared or that sort of thing. And that's a cruel, cruel attitude, even though you're keeping the precepts. So this, what you call lying to yourself, uh, being harsh with yourself, ruminating, auto-defeating, all of this is unwholesome. But no, it's technically not breaking the fourth precept. It's not possible to lie to yourself. Not, not that way. It's possible to manipulate yourself so you actually believe something to be true. But then the thing is, when you believe it to be true, you're, you're no longer lying. Should I note the experience and reaction or note the feeling? For example, when I note fear, there is a physical sensation like heat, and there is a reaction to both the physical and the mental. Whatever is clearest. We do recommend noting things like fear first because they're going to be ethical states. They're going to be problematic. So make sure you are noting them if you notice them. But it's also fine, especially in the beginning, to note whatever's clearest. If it's the physical, that's fine. You'll still notice the mental. So you don't have to note everything. But yeah, do try to uh, note the fear when you notice it. Any advice on how to live one's life? Mindfully. It's really the only advice. There's a lot more. There's a lot more you can give, like ethics. Uh, three worldly things that you should consider to be positive spiritual practices are, are ethics. Uh, charity, ethics, and meditation. Those are sort of the three staples of goodness. But ultimately, mindfulness is going to be the most important thing. Everything else is going to take a secondary role.
in terms of importance. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. If you've done the at-home course, you could even come and do a course here at our center. We could show you how to live your life or help you. No, I mean, not be so arrogant as to think suddenly you'll will have taught you everything you need to know, but it certainly should help. Does enlightenment evolve or remain the same forever? Enlightenment is a very specific and absolutely unchanging reality. It means seeing Nibbana, and Nibbana is never going to change. So, yeah, enlightenment isn't either. What is metta meditation? Metta, M-E-T-T-A, metta. Metta is in the English word or the uh, Greek. Um, metta, M-E-T-T-A, is uh, means friendliness. So you wish for all beings to be happy. May I be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. There's lots of guides to it on the internet. Metta, it's often translated as loving kindness, but really just means friendliness, cultivating a friendly attitude. I would like to eat meat, but I don't want to take a life. I have considered switching to eggs to get my daily amino acids, but I still crave seafood and meat. Can I eat animals that die of natural causes? You can, but you can also eat animals that died of murder as well, just as long as you're not at all involved in the murder. So, I mean, I wouldn't recommend seeking out meat. And I do recommend just generally try and find vegetarian alternatives. There's so many reasons. The top being it, it doesn't even indirectly contribute to murder, but as long as you're not directly involved with the murder in terms of requesting it or encouraging it or carrying it out in some way, it's not wrong to eat meat. It's not unethical. Ethical is only your state of mind, so you can eat meat with a pure state of mind. There's no problem there. It's just the being that owned the meat has already departed. They have no interest in it, and if they do, well, they shouldn't. Just dead flesh. Like when you die and you go somewhere else, will you care if people eat? And will you care if whether you were murdered, butchered? Is that going to make a difference? I mean, it might, but that's your problem, not theirs. It really would be silly to be upset if someone ate your body. Just physical. Is Elon going, going vegetarian, if you do decide, is should be very low on your list of priorities. It's something, well, not very low, it should be low. I mean, it's, it's challenging when you have to go and buy meat and then you feel like, oh, I'm contributing to the meat industry. So as a layperson, you can kind of think, eh, I should probably, but it should be nowhere on the, not nowhere near the top of your list of priorities. So don't worry too much about it. There are much more important things like giving up greed and anger, the anger that might cause you to hurt or kill some 
animal. That's much more important. Hitler was apparently a vegetarian. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what people say. Is it okay to note pain just as feeling? I have noticed that when I note pain as feeling, the pain goes away much sooner, and I don't react negatively to it. So yeah, we're not trying to make it easier. Um, you should note the pain as pain, and that's important because it's we're interested to know why this is happening. Why do you have to avoid noting pain? Because of it triggers you, perhaps, or it seems to be triggering you, and that's important to see. It shouldn't. There's no reason why the word pain should trigger you any more than feeling. But it sounds like saying feeling allows you to sort of pretend that it's not there or avoid having to face it head on or that sort of thing. And you don't want that. Mindfulness is about facing. It's not about avoiding or fixing or trying to massage the situation in some way. Recently, I was watching sexual material and tried to watch, but not masturbate to it, and I just felt my body heating up, craving sensations, and deep discomfort arises. I noted this, and noticed that there is always a reaction to these sensations, which ultimately is discomfort and the getting rid of it. In almost everything I pursue, it's almost the getting rid of this discomfort. Is this a progressive insight or just conceptualizations? I would say it's neither. It's a sign. I mean, it's seeing clearly, but it's not yet strong enough to really have any major impact. So those kind of experiences, people will often over-exaggerate their importance and think, oh, I've seen the truth and now I'm enlightened. Nowhere near that. If you see that a hundred times or a thousand times, it might lead to some some real not insight, because insight is just such a misleading term in English. It would lead to clarity, like an actual shift in clarity. But really, mindfulness requires you to see it, really understand, really appreciate what you're now describing. Seeing it once isn't likely going to do that. So, but it, but it is encouraging. It should be encouraging. It's great. I mean, not to trivialize or belittle your experience. It it's great. Just don't exaggerate its importance. Once is once, and that's great. It's awesome. But see that a hundred times or a thousand times, and then you'll see some real change in attitude. Can using different mantras with the breath, i.e. repeating, may I be happy, during the rising, be useful? I mean, useful, yes, but not mindfulness. So you have to understand the different levels of usefulness. May I be happy is actually considered to be very unuseful. Uh, it's it's a technically not even metta. Wishing yourself to be happy doesn't even work really for cultivating metta. Uh, I mean, people say it can help you to see when you hate yourself and that sort of thing, but it can also be indulgent. Um, anyway, the commentaries say you you use it as an example but then you um, practice metta towards other beings. And that's when you have anger towards them. When you have a lot of ill will towards other beings, metta can help you with that. But it's only a temporary fix. You should never use it with the rising. 
The rising should be noted as rising. May I be happy, may I be happy, just use it as an example to move on to the real important practice of wishing others to be happy. For your own unhappiness, when you're afraid that you hate yourself or that sort of thing, mindfulness is going to be much more useful. Just wishing yourself to be happy is, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. Yes, it does help for sure. I mean, the problem is in the West, we we often have very strong hatred towards ourselves. But still, it's not going to be anywhere near the beneficial, uh, I mean, anywhere near as beneficial as mindfulness. Just noting the anger and the hatred and that sort of thing. Because we, you, what you don't want is to create an over-exaggerated sense of self-worth where you love yourself or that sort of thing. You should be neutral. The self is just a concept. You should just see it as it arises, the experience. So, so the real way to get over hating yourself or loving yourself is to give up self, right? Give up this whole idea of the self. Just don't even refer to it. Try and just see what happens as experiences. It's a much better and more clear and more accurate way of of experiencing reality. Ante, we've crossed the hour, but there is one more question in the top tier. Do you have the time to answer? Go for it. Drugs have been known to disturb the mind in some way. Some drugs, like mushrooms, or certain plants, like marijuana, cause feelings of insight, or even delusions. Can I take specific drugs to meditate? No. Can you? I mean, I'm not your... I'm not your... I'm not your lord or master. But uh, can it ever have any relationship to mindfulness? No. No, I've done all of that, so don't... Before you say, oh, well... What do you know? I do know. I've done both of those two things that you mentioned in reasonable quantities, and the answer is no. There is no relationship with mindfulness. None whatsoever. They're harmful. They're they're going to be deleterious uh, in term in in your meditation practice. They are not going to help. Psilocybin is interesting. I'll give you that. And yes, it is known to help. So is marijuana. Known to help people with PTSD, but not in the way that we are trying to help people. So if it helps you be ordinary, then I'm not going to get in your way. It's certainly better than taking some of these more synthetic, hardcore drugs like, uh, I don't know, Ritalin, Xanax. I, I mean, I don't even know the I don't even know the real nature of these things. But my um, what I've heard and what has been described to me about these things is. Marijuana and psilocybin, TLC and psilocybin are are better. So if that's what you're taking it for, I mean, I would still consider that they're they're probably breaking the the fifth precept, but um, it's just, I mean, it doesn't make you an evil person. It just means you're not going to easily progress on the path. Yep. Thank you, Bonte. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you everyone for your questions. Thank you all for joining and for listening and for participating and meditating. 
Thank you, Chris, for your help. Edit for your help as well. Of course. Have a good week, everyone. Sadhu. Sadhu.